This song you just play, you write it? Working on it. It's not an established song? No, it's not an established song. How come you don't play it during daytime? I see you every day. You know, during the day, people want to hear songs they know. Just songs that they recognize. I mean, otherwise, I wouldn't make any money. I play these songs at night. They wouldn't listen. I listen. Yeah, but you gave me ten cents. You do it for money, then? Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowling. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. We are at episode 34 today, which is Erica's choice, so let's find out what she has in store for us. I chose Once from 2007, which knocked my socks off when I saw it, and I've been waiting for the opportunity to show it to you, and I'm so glad I got to. It was written and directed by John Carney and stars Glenn Hansard and Marquette Erglova. It's a modern-day musical about a busker and an immigrant who come together when they find that they collaborate beautifully over music that they are creating that is telling their personal stories. It couldn't have been any more clear that you were very excited about this because from the second you pushed play on the DVD player, as it is reflected in my notes, Erica is already singing. How could I not? It's the extended 20th Century Fox theme song where they go on a little bit longer. It's my favorite. It makes me so excited. I did not sing through the movie though, right? Right. I wanted to. A lot. Do you want to go get in the car maybe and drive around a little bit and I'll put in the uh, soundtrack? We have recording to do. I got so excited when I watched this. I don't ever really do things like this anymore because I monitor my discretionary income pretty closely. But the second that I watched this, I bought a copy of the film. I bought the soundtrack and I bought a Frames album. There's one Frames album in particular that I really love and it's for the birds the one that they recorded part of with Steve Albini. That's my connection to it. So I was familiar with Hansard's music coming into this ahead of time, which I think helped a great deal. I was absolutely not. I must have spent the years from 1991 when I saw him in The Commitments up until 2007 in some sort of a Glenn Hansard-free fog, I guess. I had no idea that he had been doing that all of that time. So... The music was a revelation for me. The music is where we start, quite appropriately. We hear the voice first, the song first. We have our guy, Glenn Hansard, busking. And the song is When the Healing Has Begun. We begin with the handheld camera from a distance. And at that distance, we see another man who is acting kind of oddly in an alley. To me, he was peeing surreptitiously, sort of, sort of not. Welcome to Dublin. Yes. And then what ensues, though, is that this man is clearly going to steal our guy's guitar case. There's a short chase scene in and out of a store, which still makes me laugh. And they get to an open square and all the money comes out of the case. So we have our first little setback. I don't know that I read it so much as a setback because it was only a small amount of money for one thing. But it illustrated a nice character point in that he was willing to give it up. 
because he can obviously tell that this character is in much more dire straits than he is. Junk sick is what it seems like to me. Already, we are beginning to learn little things about the generosity of his spirit and just his general humanity. Established really quickly, which is a theme that comes up over and over again for me, the drawbacks and benefits to the cinematic shorthand that they use in this film, in this case, it works extremely well in this opening sequence. I think another aspect of that, though, which is also telling in a different respect, is that he would prefer not to chase after the money. He will just give it up. But the effort that goes into chasing this guy down, he would rather not do. He's not a huge go-getter, I think, is Very the, true. what we're supposed to get. It does illustrate quite a few things. Yes. And the next scene as well, which is literally the difference between day and night. He's busking again. It's nighttime. This time he is singing his own song, his own work. During the daytime, it was the Van Morrison song. Now it's his original work, as we mentioned in the playlet. As the camera begins to move, we take in his worn guitar, well-loved, well-used. And it occurs to me that he's essentially singing for no one, just for himself. I dispute that. Okay. Because of the number of times I have written in my notes... Forget her. He's not singing for no one. He's singing that very specific song for a very specific someone. And the very first thing I wrote early in my notes, without even knowing the rest of the story, I went into this having never seen it before. If he is honest with himself, he doesn't want her back. He wants the song that he's getting out of it. And when we say her, the specter of this Mm ex-girlfriend that we don't yet know that much about, but you're saying... It's pretty clear. It's extremely clear. I did see this after a breakup, so maybe it colored my viewing a little bit. Could possibly. be. I've also written a number of songs inspired by a number of things, and it's easy to tell. In this case, though, the camera continues to expand out, and suddenly there is someone. The big 10-cent tipper. It's an impossibly small young woman, and she starts asking about the motivation for these songs and why he's doing this. Who's it for? And this is when I wrote, what is he not telling himself? What is he not admitting to himself? She, however, has more prosaic needs, which is a broken vacuum cleaner. Fortunately, he actually fixes vacuum cleaners. It really is a modern day musical. It's all coming together. Now, the time that we cover in this film is pretty short. So things move quickly. Extremely. The running time is very short as well. It's a crisp 86 minutes or so. And as you mentioned earlier, we get more of these insights into character. We next see him in his room. And for me, this was really telling because you have small pictures, small prints taped to the wall. Nothing's in a frame. He's got this small bed that I'm assuming is the one that he's probably always had in that house, in his family's house. His childhood bed, essentially, that he's now outgrown. With the dresser next to it, it strikes me as being a delay, a stopping point that he's at, that he's not moving forward in his life. This is when we see the photo of this woman who we assume is this ex-girlfriend, and he calls her, but she doesn't answer. So again, it's these unfulfilling exercises that he's doing so far. I mentioned because of the short running time and how quickly it has to move and how much music it has to pack into the story. 
it resorts to shorthand an awful lot. This was one of the scenes that I thought really failed with how obvious and... Too easy. Yes, there are things in it occasionally, like this ex-girlfriend in the picture frame, that are so obvious as to feel telegraphed even. You know they're coming before they're even on screen. Other things in other instances work really well, but this was the first time I was aware of this film is letting me down with this shortcut. To me, it actually makes a lot of sense. In my life, I did at one point go back to my parents in my 20s, and I think that that's what the room that I occupied for about 11 months looked like as well. There wasn't a picture of an ex-boyfriend or anything like that, but... Cool Leaf Garrett posters? Oh, I wish. No, Sean Cassidy, are you kidding me? <laughs> but it makes sense. But I, I do see where you're coming from, though. Again, though, it's pretty short, so we're already moving ahead. To be clear, I don't quibble with the other details that are establishing character. It's just the lingering on the sad moment with the ex-girlfriend's photo. It's that one thing I that see. seemed lazy. Okay. Now we get to learn more about our girl. She meets back up with him and he offers to take her to lunch. The detail that I really like is that she says she's always hungry. She's dragging that hoover around and she talks about how she can actually play piano, but she doesn't have access to one except for a local shop that lets her come and play for about an hour a day during lunchtime. This sequence I really love because it illustrates the positive effects of using these devices to propel the story along, specifically a slight language barrier. Not much of one, but it's just enough to perform a couple of really important functions. The first important way that it functions is to allow for a dismissal of common courtesies. The niceties that we usually employ in this introductory get-to-know-each-other period, rather than getting bogged down by cultural differences or slight misunderstandings in the language, we're just going to put that aside and quickly move through it. Glenn Hansard has said that that's really a function of Marqueta just as a direct person. And I think that came through in the script as well. He has talked about how well their collaboration worked, especially in the beginning, because she was constantly questioning him about these songs that he had written or these paths that he wanted to follow in his songs in that, did this actually happen to you? What are you trying to say? Yes or no? When you have to answer with yes or no, you can't really embellish things, make them sound better than they are. Well, that leads me exactly to the second primary function of the language barrier in that it underlines music as a universal language, which we are leading to in this scene in the music store. They find this commonality, this place of collaboration as they begin to play together first she starts to play the piano and he is intensely watching her. They begin to play together. He is teaching her the chords for this song that he has started. She begins to sing with him, play with him. And I'm really entranced by the idea of taking something you've created and then there's this new voice and what this brings to the mix. And I wanted to ask you, because you are a musician, do you relate to this at all? Oh, without a doubt. There are a lot of things in this very short film that ring true 
as far as what it's like to create and especially to collaborate. Music has driven me my entire life, even before I knew what movies were, obviously. Music is one of the very first things that happens to us, and for some of us, I feel the lucky ones, it maintains that importance throughout the rest of our lives. There isn't a day that goes by that I don't listen to music at least a little bit, unless it's just completely inaccessible to me. And even then, you know me, I'm constantly drumming, there are things going in my head. If I don't have music externally, I've got it internally. I have a guitar very much like that one that I have bashed a hole in in the same spot because I have played it to death. A guitar that my father got for me before I was even born. He wanted it in a poker game and it sat in a closet and waited and waited and waited until I, at about 15, began to learn how to play. We were on a collision course, that thing and I before I even existed. I remember I had my Panasonic SG-123 record player that was a full-size portable record player that had an octave keyboard on it so you could play along with the record as the record played. Whoa. And in 1978, I remember exactly where I was sitting in my living room when I discovered I can play the melody to YMCA along with the single as Man. it spins. Wow. And then I realized I can move that melody to different places on the keyboard, and before I even knew what these things were called, I was teaching myself about transposition and intervals and all of these things that later became more formal concepts, but that were just sort of an instinctive experimental thing. It was music, music, music all the time, and it's never stopped. And there have been instances in my life where things similar to what happened in this film have happened to me. In the spring of 2001, my friend Jeannie Howell and I met at South by Southwest. We were members of the same music bulletin boards back on AOL, back in the good old days. And we had planned to meet here, and if we could, play some music together. And it was such an immediate thing. It was such an obvious connection, a real understanding of what each other wanted to do and how we wanted things to sound. I got home after that trip was over, to discover that we were downsizing and I'd lost my job. So I got on the phone, I called her, I said, I lost my job, do you want to make a record? Within a week, I was in her house, and in a week, we wrote 14 songs, and then a week later, we drove all the way to Pennsylvania, on the other coast, to record this album with another friend of ours. And it's still one of the most fun things I've ever done. It's still one of the most fruitful partnerships I've ever had musically. In the band that I'm in now, some say Leland, who provide the opening and closing music for the show, there's just no describing what that partnership has meant to my life. I have been able to travel the country, meet incredible people, see the most beautiful places in the world with some of the people I've loved the absolute most. There is nothing in the world like it, and it has introduced me to other people that we have since collaborated with whose music has made a huge difference in my life, particularly Spirits of the Red City, who, like this movie, I feel like the sound they made and the people they were came into my life at the absolute right time, so much so that I feel like it probably even saved my life, literally. There is no way to overstate the importance of what music has meant to me. And so I completely relate to all of this. This lightning in a bottle feeling. It's like a revelation in the film. It is absolutely like that. And it does happen like that in real life. It is not an exaggeration. It happens just like this. 
without maybe the romantic entanglement necessarily. But when you find a collaborator, when you find a cohort like that, you seize that thing. You do not let that thing go without documenting that and doing everything you can to make sure you sustain it for as long as possible. I'm quite envious of that because while I can play music, I don't consider myself to be a musician. But I've discovered the joy, as I think actually Marquetta did. Glenn Hansard talks about how when they first met, she had only played music that she read. So in other words, she wasn't creating her own stuff. But we actually played together sometimes, and I've discovered how absolutely wonderful and joyous it is. I thought jamming before in my drum lessons was fun. This is a whole nother level. I was going to say, since you specifically said you're not a musician, you feel like, but you play music, even with that, even feeling like you're at a sort of a basic amateur level, that first time that we sat down and did that, and I was showing you things on the mandolin and we were playing and singing together, is that not one of the best times you've ever had? Absolutely. And if we did it every single day and rode around in a bus doing it, <laughs> that would be wonderful. What I consider to be the difference and why I love this movie so much, for me, I feel like I lack the instinct mm. of a musician. I got you. I don't know that these new things are playing in my head. I see. So I think that that musicality that these two obviously have really tells. After this first taste of collaboration, they are on a bus. They're going to go back to get her vacuum taken care of. In the meantime, she demonstrates how much more astute and perceptive and also direct she is. She immediately starts talking about, tell me about this girl that you've obviously written all these songs about. Are you going to go get her someday? And I'm thinking about as he is telling the story of falling in love with this girl and she broke his heart. He's got his guitar in front of him the whole time, which for me was about protection. Oh, very definitely. It functions as a shield. It is very definitely a security blanket. And it also made me think of two things. It made me think, one, the participants in this film are big fans of Linklater's Before Trilogy, I would guess, just based on how it plays out in travel and moving around the city and the conversation, the walking and talking. And two, it made me think of the guy with the guitar at the party that everybody hates. <laughs> and they do go to a party later, but fortunately, everyone at that party is the guy with the guitar, so it's not quite as bad. That's understood. But as they're on the back of the bus and he is unspooling his romantic history and spiking it with little bursts of song, I thought very much about no one wants to sit next to you. <laughs> I guess I thought it was a lot more charming than you did. And that's okay. I know a lot of musicians. <laughs> yes, right. And I've been to a lot of parties where the guitar always comes out. And it is the worst. Is it one of those, oh, I, no, I haven't warmed up. I couldn't possibly. <laughs> it is frequent. I get, okay, you know what? Now that you say that... There's That's, surely a drama equivalent. I was going to say, there are musical theater parties. Yeah. Somebody's always going to be next to a piano, though, exactly. in this instance. Okay, gotcha. Back at the shop, we meet his dad as well, who's a great guy. Great character. Love that guy. And he takes her up to his room. It's very awkward. They're listening to a recording that he's made, and he makes an unsubtle, awkward pass at her, asking her to stay the night. And she says, uh, fuck this, I'm leaving. 
He knows that he's screwed up. The next day, he catches up with her. She's selling flowers, and he apologizes, and she very kindly accepts his apology. He gives her a recording that he's made. He also gives her a CD player as well so that she can listen to it. He's still trying to get her to come with him, but she very clearly states that she has responsibilities. She's got a new job, cleaning a big house. She really has to go. He walks her home, and this is when we get the opportunity to learn more about her family life, her home life. She's in a smaller apartment in what is sort of a row house. There are a lot of other people outside. It looks like there are other immigrants as well. And we meet her child. She has a small child. Her mother lives there with her as well. And they invite him to stay for dinner. And we get the entire view of the apartment. Everything is in this one room. And then her bed and her daughter's crib are in a little side space as well. We learn that her husband, the father of her child, doesn't live here. He is still back in their home country. I really like these alternating scenes of them in their own home place because, again, it's one of those shorthand things that is actually well executed in the film. You learn so much about a person when you go to their home. When you came to my home for the first time, for instance. Yes, I learned a lot. What did you learn? That I love you. (laughs) But you really do see from the photos on the walls, whether they're in frames, whether they're taped up, their whole life story is on display for you. And in a well-designed film, in a well-designed set, it communicates more than you could ever cram into two hours of exposition, if you're paying attention. So I really like that they go back and forth with these alternating scenes of them in each other's homes. Your home was a one-bedroom apartment, and in the living room, your 4,000 movies in that space. So I knew, yeah, I knew everything right then. It was a living room slash dining room. Thank you. It was the media library. It was. One bowl, one plate, one fork. And 4,000 DVDs. As it should be. The other thing you learn in this sequence, she's not really an actress. Correct, yes. By her own admission and has no plans to do any other acting because she has said she just wouldn't feel comfortable with the crew because that's just not what she does. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not necessarily a bad thing because what it reminded me of was Esther Belint in Stranger Than Paradise, just much less concerned with being cool. She had her own music in this film rather than the boombox with Screamin' Jay Hawkins. Which, not a bad choice. Yeah. But it felt a little bit to me like that. With the language barrier, with the non-professional performance that felt sometimes disconnected, but ultimately worked for what the film was trying to do. She reminded me of her a little bit. There are a couple of moments that we'll get to later when she's truly called upon to express a very deep emotion and for me those definitely work and then these other smaller scenes do feel a little bit more awkward which is kind of interesting but I think again when we get to those moments later those are music moments and I think it's a bit easier to express that honesty then the music moments all absolutely work the other things when she's called upon to pull up something a little deeper Eh, I don't know that those are a home run. We'll reserve that debate 
for a few moments from now. Okay. At this point, they're wrapping up the evening. My favorite moment for her is when she says, thanks for the Hoover, the food, and the songs. And he says, thanks for the company. He has given her a melody that he's created, but he's not happy with the lyrics that he has. They just don't feel right. And so she takes this opportunity to try writing some lyrics. Is this something that you can also relate to? Have you ever taken melody or lyrics and tried the other? We did it a bunch several years ago. Some friends of mine and I, a rotating crew of us, collaborated on songs constantly. This was when I lived in Oklahoma. Anyone who had a piece of anything would bring it to the group, and eventually that would turn into a song. And a number of times I wrote lyrics to music that already existed and vice versa. Sometimes that worked and sometimes it didn't, but it was always a really fun and interesting process. She starts in on this process and realizes that the batteries are dead in this little portable CD player that he's given her. So she goes out to the corner store, essentially, in her PJs to buy batteries. And this turns into the song coming to life. This is a true, to my mind, musical scene. And before I ask you if it worked for you, I'm going to say there are very few musical type scenes in any film that don't work for me. I just go with it. But this is very much, she is singing. It's a long tracking shot. We go through the whole song. She's out in public doing this. Does this work for you? It works really well, I thought. We talked a little bit in our episode about Top Hat, about how the artificiality of certain musical conventions was always a stumbling block for me initially. It really put me off. This is a really seamless integration of music into the film, it feels like, because you hear the backing track as if it is being filtered through those headphones. And she is giving herself over to the music as she is going through this creative collaboration process on her own as she's walking down the street in her fuzzy slippers. And the length of the tracking shot and how well executed that is made me wish that the rest of the film was that imaginative when it comes to the camera work. It's not a great-looking film overall. It's a very resourceful movie, and I really like that about it. But this scene managed to work music into the film in a natural way that was also a real technical achievement, especially for their budget, I feel like. Yeah, this scene worked really well. I enjoyed this scene an awful lot. Maybe one of my favorite scenes in it. Definitely a very small budget, and they often worked with no permits, so that's why we see things from a great distance, because John Carney would have to be in a doorway across the street, <laughs> hiding the camera. The single biggest expense they had was the crane shot at the very end. Mm. Everything else was nothing. This, the whole scene on the bus, no one knew that they were being filmed. And even the crane shot, there's a little imperfection in it. You can tell... They probably didn't have the time or the money to go back and try it again because when it moves out in a way, you can see the camera wobbling just slightly as it backs up and moves across the front of the apartment building. It's a look of necessity less than virtuosity. Mm -hmm. And another thing I find quite charming, the original concept for the release of the film, they were just going to go around and play shows and hand out the DVD to people. They had no concept of it going into theaters at all. 
he's continuing to work on other music as well. He's watching this extended video of his ghost girlfriend that's not there. Get over, over it. it. Yes. Well, he has not. He clearly has not. And he comes to a big decision. He tells her he's going to London on Monday to go get this girlfriend. But he says, I'd like to make a recording together. Again, with this economy of time, they have a very short amount of time to make this recording before he's going to leave. So they find a recording space. And she is this canny negotiator that is trying to bring the cost down. Initially, $3,000 for a weekend. She gets him down to 2000 My question is, when you went to Marfa several years ago with the band, how much did that cost for you guys to record? $3,000 for a weekend in a studio is insane. Either you have no connections, you don't know anyone, or you need to do it in such a hurry that you just have to take the first available space. We made the last record, the whole process from recording and rehearsal and all of that to actually having the finished product in our hand for probably less than $3,000. Oh, okay. That is nuts to pay that much for a recording studio. Do you think it was high Dublin prices or movie? I don't know what the exchange rate is. They're trying to just, you know. (laughs) But that's an awful lot of money. Yeah, $3,000 is bananas, especially with how inexpensive making a good quality digital recording has become. The level of quality you can achieve in your own home for a fraction of that cost makes that $3,000 price tag just nuts. Are we going to remake this as once two and once again, show the, show the real story? Once more. <laughs> the once inning. Once twice. <laughs> Even better. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Sorry. It drives me crazy. Uh-oh. It well. makes me absolutely insane when I see bands begging for money on Kickstarter. I knew we were going to come to this. <laughs> Here's the thing. Knowing what records cost to make, and it's not that much to make a good-sounding record these days, when I see a band, take our band, for instance, six people in it, we need approximately $3,000 to do the whole thing. For us to put up a Kickstarter campaign, asking you for $3,000 is saying that each one of the six of us is not willing to inconvenience ourselves to either work a little extra or save a little extra to kick in $500 for this thing that we claim means so much to us. For other more expensive and ambitious projects, I understand crowdfunding, but for bands making record, you guys are charlatans. That is the biggest con. All that means is you don't want to pick up an extra shift over the weekend at the bar. You don't want to get a paper route. You don't want to do whatever it is you need to do over the course of a couple of months to kick in your share of that money. You would rather beg your friends for it and shake your digital tin cup in their face every day on your Facebook feed than actually go out and earn that money to demonstrate how much this thing means to you. Jeez, Woody Guthrie, okay. End of... (laughs) Move, move. I'm putting up my soapbox. I need room. All right. I believe I was saying $3,000 for this recording studio over the weekend is expensive. Oh, that's right. Okay. Well, they get them down to 2000 and go get a small business loan for it. I'm going to move us forward a little bit 
they have an outing. He has stolen, I guess, his dad's Borrowed. motorbike. Borrowed his dad's motorbike. Super cool one, right? Beautiful triumph. And he convinces her to go out to the sea with him. They talk a little bit more about her husband again, that he is in the Czech Republic. She talks about this distance between she and her husband, the age difference, the physical distance, and he asks her, do you love him? She won't answer back in English, and what none of us know, because it's not subtitled, and what the filmmakers didn't know, what Glenn Hansard didn't know, is that she actually answers him, no, I love you. But that moment is not taken anywhere. We're now with the other members of this band that he's recruited and they're rehearsing. The moment I love is when his dad brings in tea for everybody. With as much attention as is paid to the notion of finding a kindred spirit, there are very definitely instances when you meet a group of people who do not speak your musical language. And it feels like that to me when he is rehearsing with this band. It feels a little desperate and that he has settled for whomever he can assemble at a moment's notice, which leads to a little bit of a downfall for me in the scene that's coming up when they go to the studio. They have clearly not done much recording and say so, and the engineer is treating them with some disdain, it seems like. What part of this was the letdown for you? Two things. When the engineer does the cliched, wait a minute... Yes. What's this? Yeah, he's on his phone, and then he hears these beautiful noises a moment later, and then he starts smiling to himself and actually adjusting things on the board, and it's, yeah, it's obnoxious. If you are an engineer worth your salt, you are paying attention, you are doing your job, no matter who is in that booth. The other thing being that all of a sudden it starts to gel so magnificently that it engenders that response in him. Yes. That was a little ham-fisted, that section. I guess I'm used to those moments when Judy Garland opens her mouth (laughs) and everything looks beautiful at that point. But yeah, I can see what you're saying. They keep working. They're pushing through, on through the night. It's four in the morning. They're taking a short break. And then the girl goes off by herself into the separate recording space where there's a piano. She talks about these sort of half-written songs, these ideas that she has. She begins to play a piece that's clearly inspired by her husband. This is a moment I was referring to earlier when she is called upon to have an emotional scene that absolutely works for me because she has to stop playing. She breaks down and cries. She's feeling this so much. And I completely believed that. I didn't see it the same way you did in that particular sequence. Which is a shame because she is doing something that is absolutely natural to her when she is playing and singing. But when called upon to really pull up that emotion, she doesn't have the gravity to pull it off, it feels like. She feels very much like a young girl who is out of her depth, but as an actress, not as a wife who is separated from her husband and raising a daughter on her own. I still disagree because I don't think that that voice break was forced. Maybe not for the motivation of wife, mother, separated from husband. Maybe more for working all night, young person. I still believed it. That part is absolutely true. When it comes to other things that are happening that they show in the studio, when you pay for a block of time like that, 
you try to get everything out of it and you work that entire time and when it gets to be four in the morning and you've been playing the same song for two hours and it's not working or even if it is working strange things happen <laughs> you get punchy you get vulnerable the studio is a really interesting and strange environment that's like nothing else one of my favorite things to do when we are making a record when I set my drums up I push them out just far enough away from the wall that I could make a little area behind them to sleep and it's like I've built myself a little musical fort and I feel so comfortable back there and if no one knows where I've gone or what I'm doing everyone knows go look behind the drums because he is back there probably asleep everyone has their own strange habits and rituals and when it's with a group of people that you've spent a lot of time with and you know each other's rhythms and what each other's needs are when they need privacy when they need to have someone with them it's hard enough to do with people you know really well and love but when you have assembled a band of strangers basically from on the street that you've spent a couple of hours of rehearsal time with I don't know that it would go this well but I can very definitely see how if you have been working so hard on this thing that's so important and it is so late and you are so tired and you still have a lot more work to do I can see how that would be your response to it you also live with me and you know what happens every day of the week for me at 9 15. <laughs> I mean you're not getting anything good out of me at that at that point you would never make it in the studio. No, no. I would cry the whole time. <laughs> or I would hide in your musical fort and never come out. It's pretty fun in my fort. I bet. Eventually, they get everything together. They've got a first finished product. So they put it to the car test, as the engineer calls it. They've got to see what it sounds like in a car. Is that a real thing? That is absolutely a real thing. If there is a musician alive that tells you they don't do that, they're a filthy liar. Every recording I've ever made, either by myself or with a band, the first thing we do with it is get in the car and drive around and see how it sounds and how it feels. Not just the sound of it. I think one thing that they don't specifically address, the sequence of it, to feel how that works is just as important as how it sounds coming out of the speakers. But yes, the car test is 100% a real thing. The car test looks like it was pretty successful because they get everything finished. They've got the finished recordings. They've each got a copy. He invites her to come back to his house before he goes to London. And she says she has also made a big decision. She has spoken to her husband. He is actually coming over here. So... There's really no reason why would she go back with him now. There would just be some hanky-panky, as she calls it. But she eventually says, okay, I'll come. We learn, though, that she doesn't keep that date. He's been waiting for her. She hasn't shown up. We get next a scene I absolutely love where he is playing his music for his dad. And he tells his father as well that he's going to London. He's getting this girl. And his dad wishes him the best of luck and says, now play it again. I love this character too. His dad is great. Families that support you in your artistic endeavors are the best. His dad should have also said, forget her. One last time, if his dad is as wise a man as he seems, he should have told him, work on the songs, 
forget this girl. It is not worth it. She's not the one. I can tell that watching the crappy slideshows of her on his laptop. She's not it. She is not it. She's generated a lot of great songs, and that is what you take from that relationship. And be done with it. Well, when you write once, twice, we'll see how everything goes. His dad doesn't try to prevent him from going. We next see him calling this girlfriend. He actually connects with her. He says, I'm coming. She offers to come meet him at the airport. And this is where this change in motivation and decision happens. He actually says, no, I'm coming to find you. Dummy. (laughs) All right. (laughs) God. Okay. He sets out to look for the girl again. He goes to her house. Her mom is there. She says, she's not here. She's working. He goes to some different places that they've been. He is clearly arranging something at the music store where they first played together. We don't quite know what it is yet. He's now at the airport, smiling. He's going off on his journey. We come back to her house, and we see he's ordered this piano for her. It's being delivered, and she's clearly delighted. To me, it echoes the very opening scene. While I think your interpretation of the opening is right in that... This is too much trouble to pursue, therefore take it. Now that he has overcome this inertia, this generosity of spirit is still within him, and he knows he owes her more than he could ever repay. But this gesture is a beautiful gesture. And we end with that crane shot that we had mentioned, sweeping out of the window and away from her life. The end. Well, now that we've gone through it, how are you feeling about it? having chosen it for the show. Does it still resonate with you as much? I watched it first in 2007, and it's now 2016, so almost 10 years has passed, and I didn't watch it a second time in that period. It still means as much to me as it did then. Maybe it's the romantic streak. Maybe it's the musical streak. I mentioned that I saw it the first time after a breakup, and I also think that the time of day in which you watch a lot of films makes a difference. I saw this at dusk. It's a time when some things seem no longer possible, and then other things are opening up. It's endings and beginnings. In this second viewing, I was reminded of how the camera feels like It's a friend sitting next to you. It moves in and moves slightly around and moves over things. It's always gentle. I also mentioned that I didn't know the music beforehand. I'd used the word earlier, revelation. The music was a revelation for me. It came at a time when I most needed that kind of music. Mm -hmm. And what strikes me now are the aspects that I relate to in marriage, which is This idea of finding this new voice to complement your own and create something completely different that you never knew was possible. I fell for what to me was the extremely obvious charm of this movie. A lot of other people did as well. I mean, this really has legs. Mm -hmm. It won the Academy Award for Best Song. A Broadway musical was created from it, which won many, many Tony Awards, still tours. So I fell for it, unapologetically, completely. I wanted to sing it from start to finish when we just watched it. I want to go listen to the soundtrack now. I'm completely in love with this movie. 
Now, I'm guessing, though, that you would not choose this as your selection. It wouldn't quite make the cut for me for this podcast, just because our focus is the films we love. Yes. And in this case, I just liked it. It lives and dies on how much you enjoy Glenn Hansard's music, which I was a fan already, so I had that coming into it. Now, there are people for whom that is definitely not a selling point. Really? I uh, had no idea. Trust me. Years working in the record store. Okay. You believe me, I would definitely be in the minority of record store employees that enjoy this record. If I put the frames for the birds on when I was working at Waterloo, I would be lucky if it would make it through three songs before someone took it off and put something else on instead. Why is that? Because it's very pleasant and there is nothing truly provocative about true, true. what he does. The strikes against it, it's slight. But if we're putting every musical on trial for being a slight frame on which they hang musical numbers, then we've got to throw them all out practically. Or if you want to charge that a film that is set in a hotel room with no one in it and the camera never moves, that could be considered slight. Are you picking slight. on my Chantal Ackerman? <laughs> I am not. I am in total agreement that those are valuable films. Okay. So slight to me is not in the debit column. Okay. I think the thing that would make it something that I wouldn't choose is that factor, though. It's a little slight, and all those things I mentioned about how there's this give and take with the cinematic shorthand. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. In the long run, it works more than it doesn't, but there are plenty of instances that it doesn't that I can't overlook. But along with being slight come some real benefits. And I think these are the things that you really admire about it. And so do I. It is unassuming and modest. It is charming in that modest way, as evidenced by the distribution model you mentioned, in which we're just going to give this away to people. Yes. Friends made it. People who have worked together for years. I, I didn't mention John Carney was the bassist for the frames for right. a number of years. And it really has that let's put on a show air to it. And I can really pull for the underdog in that case. And the last thing that's a huge thing in its favor, I think, is that it avoids the cliches when it counts the most, especially in the end, when they don't get together. I think for me to consider it a success, just in terms of storytelling, that absolutely has to go that way. If they'd taken the easy way out at the end when it counted most, I don't think I would have as much respect for it. Ultimately... I liked a lot more about it than I didn't like, but it would not be something I would absolutely choose first. I'm still really glad I finally got to show it to you. Mm -hmm. And I also can't wait to show you The Commitments, which I will definitely be doing a show about at some point. We may have our biggest fight ever about that could one. Could be, could be. I haven't seen it still because be I reacted so badly to it. Just the idea of it, just the trailers... In 1991, I was kicking back against that thing so hard that I may still not have gotten over it. So we'll see. We'll see. It will be interesting to see. Stay tuned. The last thing I want to explore with you is the title. What does the title mean to you? The title to me is indicative of this one shot. Taking advantage 
of this alchemy that may never happen this way again. I don't think that was the original connotation of the title, but that is specifically what it connotes to me. And there is an Elvis Costello quote that I have thought about for years and years and years that is an absolute truth that applies very specifically in this case. You have 20 years to write your first album, and you have six months to write your second. You pour everything that you've got in you into making that very first recording, and nothing that comes after it, no matter how successful or fulfilling, no matter what you achieve with it, is going to feel like going into that studio that first time and doing this thing that you've never done before that is the most important thing you'll ever do. I had a specific idea about it. I was looking into what John Carney had said. He talked about how some people, and specifically the musician at the center of this, have this mindset of once I get such and such sorted out, then I can start on this project. Then I will be this person. That procrastination, that inertia, and then this thing happens to make you, to kick you in the ass, to finally get you to do this thing. That's definitely true, too. I have known plenty of musicians like that. I think about all the work that came before we met these two people, those 20 years, for lack of a better mm -hmm. phrase, to paraphrase Elvis Costello. All this work that came before, and then this moment happens, and everything comes together. This new voice comes out of the darkness. I also think about this idea that the ending shows us it's once, it's not forever. It's this fleeting nature that even a revelation can have. It's a finite thing, ultimately. I also think about this point that you've been hammering, which is if he had just seen this other girl as once I had this woman, I don't anymore, and that's fine, it could have been quite a different thing. If he had put all of these things in the past, once upon a time, I don't think it's an issue of putting it in the past. It's an issue of keeping it in the past. You have to have the experience to have the songs, which is the important part of this. The work, the product, in the creation. In this case, yes, with this relationship. That is what is crucial to hang on to. It's just completely pointless going back and starting over unless he just knows this is going to end up with an entirely great new record when this goes horribly wrong. I was going to say double album. <laughs> this is his blood on the tracks. Then, hey, great. If that's the case, run headlong into this terrible relationship because you are going to end up with some great songs out of it. She generated a really good batch the first time. Why not go back to the well? Once, twice, three times, a lady. <laughs> In other words... The title is open to interpretation. Sure, of course. That's what I was saying. Well, now that we have all of that cleared up, how about we move on to recommendations? What is your recommendation for further viewing this time? I picked another great one. No surprise. Okay. It is His Girl Friday from 1940. Now, what inspired me to choose this one was that idea that I've talked about of having a new voice making you see something that you already knew in a completely different light. To that end, we have the play The Front Page, which has been around for a long time. It's back on Broadway right now, actually. Mm -hmm. 
The story goes that Howard Hawks was going through the script with his female secretary, and he had her reading all of the Hildy Johnson parts, and he so liked the interplay of the male-female relationship that he decided to remake the movie and change Hildy from a man to a woman. So I've got His Girl Friday, one of my absolute favorite screwball comedies with Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell. It's the story of a newspaper editor who will use every trick in the book to keep his ace reporter ex-wife from remarrying, including capitalizing on an upcoming execution of a convicted cop killer. It's great fun. I got really inspired by the first scene in the music shop in Once about mm. putting those voices together to make something completely new. And it's always been one of my favorites. How about you? My recommendation is my favorite film in which there are two lead performances by two musicians slash non-professional actors, and that is Tulane Blacktop from 1971, directed by Monty Hellman, starring James Taylor, Dennis Wilson, Laurie Bird, and Warren Oates. It's the story of the driver and the mechanic, much like the guy and the girl. It's a road movie in which they drift from small town to small town, participating in street races. And it is a beautiful picture of the back roads of America in the early 70s. They pick up a hitchhiker, which complicates things. And they also run into Warren Oates, who is at the top of his game Definitely. in this thing. I love him so much in this. His character is the most compelling to me in terms of how pathetically sad this guy is. These delusions of grandeur, the constant stretching of the truth to feel... Like he is a more interesting and whole person. It is a real triumph of casting all the way around. And the most compelling thing about James Taylor and Dennis Wilson's performances is that for all of their physical movement, how painfully inert they are. The thing looks beautiful and it is a window into a world we will never see again. I highly recommend it. That's two wonderful recommendations. His Girl Friday and Tulane Blacktop. And that brings us to the end of episode 34. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Facebook and Instagram. You can just search for our name there. We are on Twitter at lantern underscore cast. And I would like to take a second to say thanks to everyone who gave us feedback or shared the show since our last episode. Mark Herney and Aaron West at Criterion Close-Up, who just did a really fun episode about the Japanese oddity house. It was a really fun film and a really great podcast about it. Jane Sankner, Grindhouse Dave, Matteo Boscarol. We had a listener, Jay Allen, who sent us really cool photos of his 1975 William Shatner slash Michael Myers mask that he modified after he listened to our Halloween episode. Those pictures are on our Facebook page. You can check those out there. Thanks to the guys at Fuds on Film, as always, and Drew Tavendale especially for giving us a ton of great feedback on our Waiting for Guffman episode. Terry Osterhout and Tim Lego as well. We don't pay to advertise the show, and we just depend on word of mouth for it to get out to people, so we really appreciate it anytime you guys go to the trouble to let people know about us. Thank you very much. We are on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play. If you would like to subscribe to us or leave us a rating or review, we would certainly appreciate that as well. And finally, 
You can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at our website, magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. 